this week was uh, not a good week. It was an awful week, as weeks go. I watched, we watched my beautiful, vibrant, beloved sister die of metastatic breast cancer. We knew it was coming. The diagnosis came a couple of months ago, and we knew that it wouldn't uh, be long before this took place. To give you a little context, uh, as a reminder, in February, before this diagnosis was made, uh, she was sitting right over here with my other sister uh, and brother-in-law, and when I said good morning to start the worship service, she was the one who shouted back, good morning. Didn't matter if a hundred other people didn't say good morning. If someone said good morning to her, no matter what the setting, she was going to say good morning back. She was 61, and it was brutal. It was ugly. Every part of it was awful. From knowing it was coming, having seen her the week before, to seeing her in such bad shape, unconscious, um, starting on Monday, and then deteriorating throughout the week. In a sermon years ago, John Piper reminded his congregation that one of the responsibilities that he had for them as their pastor was to prepare them for, in the word he uses, calamity. To prepare his congregation for calamity, for loss, and for pain. It will come to every one of us. This morning, this week, has been our time. And others of you have shared that time. But none of us, not one person in the room, is immune to this painful loss. No matter what station of life we find ourselves in, we will all experience it. And, and obviously, the form will be different for each one of us. The circumstances will be varied in each particular situation. But calamity will come. And Piper, in commenting on this to his congregation, is able to write to them to be able to say to them, you can put it down on paper, that when calamity comes, it will seem to you to be absurd, meaningless, and undeserved. That's what it feels like. We face that. Job faced that. And the question that I have for us, that I have for myself in looking at the text is, where is the victory of faith at that moment for Job in this text? Where's the victory of faith for us when we are confronting it? What does the struggle of faith look like at these moments? When, you're, when your bones ache, when you're sapped of strength, when everything wants to cry out that this isn't right, that it's not just, that it's not fair, that it shouldn't be happening, what does faith look like then? What should we do? And I want to turn to Job and let Job instruct us, let him teach us about these things. First of all, from this text, what we should do is we should cry and we should moan and we should mourn. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head 
and fell on the ground. When I saw my sister Monday after she had fallen into this state, it's all you could do. All I could do was to cry. I couldn't comfort my brother-in-law at that moment. I could just cry. These things that we read about here that Job did, they are not to be uh, imitated by us in the exact thing and doing the same thing that he did. They are culturally appropriate, cultural expressions of the grief that he made there. And the point here is that we too should give space to express grief. However you do that in your family, however we do that in our culture, we make room for the expression of sadness and of sorrow. I want you to imagine something for a moment that I don't think is actually very hard to imagine because it's true for myself as well. So the portion that I just read for us is the, the portion in verse 20 describing Job's action. But I think, at least for me and probably for most of you, the portion of this passage that is the most well known is the second half of verse 21, where we read, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But imagine for a moment that we didn't have anything before that. Imagine that we didn't have this section here about Job tearing his robe and about Job falling on his face and shaving his head. What might we then think about that passage? Now listen, just, just so we're clear, I think that statement, uh, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord, is one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible. It, to me, is, if you want to talk about two peaks, particularly in the Old Testament, of declarations that come from men, then I think one of those would be Joshua saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And certainly another peak, another pinnacle moment in the Old Testament is Job's declaration. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that statement by itself, without the preceding verse, could appear to be, could sound very cold very unfeeling, very unaffected, very just matter of fact. This is the reality. God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job is most certainly affected by the catastrophic loss that he has experienced. He is the the archetype of suffering. And yet, even as an archetype of suffering, he's a prototype. He's a prototype of the one who would come, the one who would be a man who was acquainted with grief, familiar with sorrows, a man of sorrows. Jesus wept. Jesus was deeply moved. Jesus was greatly troubled. Like Job. And these expressions that he makes here are evidence of exactly that. If Job makes that expression, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, he makes it through tears. Think about this, the biblical injunction to comfort others, to be compassionate to others, assumes the reality 
of deep pain, of discomfort. If we are unaffected by our own suffering, we will most certainly be ineffective in providing any comfort to others. We will certainly be ineffective in trying ourselves to be comforted if we are unaffected people. Job wept and Jesus wept and we should cry. Secondly, from this passage, we should think. Verse 21, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. These are words of deep reflection, deep calls to deep at the sounds of your waterfalls. And when the sea billows roll, when they come roaring over us, it calls us to think, not just to experience, not just to react, but to think about what is taking place, to ask questions about life and about death, about suffering and about sin, about who's responsible for what, what is Satan responsible for, what is sin responsible for, what am I responsible for, what is God responsible for in the midst of this pain. So I put these passages on the front of your bulletin this morning. Just turn to the front here for a second. You don't have to turn to Ecclesiastes. They're both from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The first from verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. We'll lay it to heart. We'll take time to think about it. We'll take time to absorb, to try to figure out what is happening in this particular situation and why it is happening. The living will take it to heart when we're in the house of mourning. And then from verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. There are days of prosperity. Not every day is a day of mourning. Not every house is a house of mourning, nor should they be. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. Consider. Now here's what, in particular, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, consider. Consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Or just stop it for a moment. In the day of adversity, consider. Think in the day of adversity. The book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, from which those verses are obviously taken, are part of wisdom literature. And wisdom requires thought. Now, it's biblically enriched thinking about awful circumstances. You can't be wise by just, and I've, I'm doing this because I've talked about gardening in a couple of sermons. You can't be wise by just thinking about flowers. You can't only think about good things and 
become a wise person. Now, if you think about dying flowers, well, that, that gets us closer. But to become a biblically wise person means being able to enter in to a house of mourning and in the house of mourning, in light of what we know about God, to think, to test it, to ask the questions that are in the back of our mind, that are in the depth of our soul. The reality is that in the middle of laughter, and we have spent a lot of time laughing together, We've been in good situations. I've been in good situations with many of you where we've enjoyed delightful times and delightful days. But in the midst of laughter, we tend not to ask questions about life or death or God or God's will or why this happened to me or why this happened to someone else. We enjoy the moment. And it's a good moment in the day of 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 prosperity, be joyful. But when you are holding the hand of someone you love as they gasp for breath, well, you're going to think. You're going to think at that moment. It hits us, clearly, in a different part of ourselves. And it forces a series of questions to begin to well up inside of us and to think about what really matters, about mourning and about death and about suffering. Sometimes those things are the only things that can pull us out of, I, part of me wants to say the frenetic pace of life, but sometimes I think that's a little overrated, but in any case, Sometimes they're the only things that can pull us out of the noise of life, the, the sense that our time is always occupied with something else. Death arrests that and says, you will stop and you will think. And we as Christians ought to nurture exactly that. To make that simple statement here that Job makes, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return, is the product, well, one could say it's obvious, but made in this way, it is the product of deep meditation, and it will lead to still deeper contemplation. You make that statement, and you go, okay, this is the reality, but it is a gateway into deeper contemplation about life and about how it should be lived. It is something that is with us throughout the Bible. From Genesis, for, from dust you were and to dust you shall return, to Ecclesiastes where essentially the same phrase is read exactly the way Job has it here, noting that we can carry nothing with us. And then Paul makes the exact same point when urging godliness in 1 Timothy 6, 7. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. That simple reality is seminal to Christian thought. Note, seminal. It is not the end of Christian thought, but it is a beginning, and it is something that will continually stir 
around inside of us. We need to allow suffering to provoke us to deep thought, to allow it to be to us somewhat troubling, somewhat puzzling to the mind and to the soul. As Reformed believers, we have a great catechism, we have a great confession, we have a great creed. This is the Christian church. And I'm going to get to those in just a second and how we use them. But what I want to say is even though I may know some answers because of the creed, because of the word of God, I still ought struggle. I still ought go into those places. Spurgeon says it like this, a man ought always be good company for himself. He also, he also ought to be able to catechize himself. Let me just add this caveat. Job and his friends are going to spend a lot of time in this book thinking, struggling, wrestling with some of these questions of why. But God will end the catechizing in the book of Job. God will ask the last series of questions in the book of Job. And it is a catechism that is designed not to be able to be answered. Questions without an answer that yield an answer. To rest and to be silent before the wisdom of God. So cry and think, and then we should confess the faith. Job says, naked I came, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Those are statements of faith. They have to them a confessional quality, a catechetical quality about those statements. They are concise, they are true, they are poetic. They employ the covenantal name of God, which is not often used in the book of Job. In the midst of suffering, thinking is good, but thinking, and this is essential, thinking launches from and returns to the core of the faith, to that which is solid, to that which is settled, to that which I profess. Thinking launches off of that. It goes in any number of directions. It swirls around in my heart, my mind, and my soul, and by God's grace, it settles back down to the place where it started. Naked I came. Naked I'll return. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Over the course of the last year, starting almost exactly a year ago, the series we were doing during the summer of the church, on the church, I have tried to emphasize the importance of a confessed faith, of not just a personalized faith, but of a confessed faith, to say the same thing together about that which we believe. And countless times I have referenced the fact that Jesus, into the darkness of evil and into the face of death as he talks with Pilate, Paul says to Timothy, 
that Jesus, in that situation, made the good confession. When we face death, we make the good confession. We make the good confession when we say, as in the book of John, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We make the good confession when we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. When we look at suffering, which will, remember this, suffering will always look absurd and meaningless and undeserved. And I would add to Piper, you can be sure that it will also look to us to be random and it will look out of control. It won't look like it's some part of some master plan. It'll just look like chance. When we look at that, when we stare at that, at the calamity, and without understanding everything, we catechize or we confess, and we look at something that is so calamitous that we can't imagine that it could actually be part of some cosmic will of God, even if permissive, we can't imagine it. And we ask ourselves the question, what are the decrees of God? And we answer it and say, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Then we're yelling at chance. We are confessing to chance. We are confessing to the darkness and saying that no matter what it looks like to my finite mind, this is the truth. When we stare into that void and we ask the question, what are God's works of providence? And we respond to what are God's works of providence with the, the countersign. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures in all their actions. And I don't know why, and I don't know anything else, but I know that. That's making the good confession. Or to just put it in Job's language, you want all that? complicated Westminster Shorter Catechism language and Job's language, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the good confession. Cry, think, confess the faith, and then we should worship. Job fell down and he worshiped and he said, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, sometimes, I hope this is true for all of us, Sometimes we come to worship with a skip and a dance and a song in our heart. And we're delighted to come into the house of God. We're delighted to come in with the people of God. Sometimes it's a little bit more at a pace. We walk into worship because it's part of what we do. We're worshiping people. It is Sunday. We come into this place. Sometimes we limp into this place of worship. Sometimes we have to be dragged into this place of worship. And I know this isn't literally true. It wasn't, it's not literally true for us. It was one day. Sometimes we are paralyzed and we need our friends to take away the tiles from the roof and lower us down to get before Jesus so that we can worship our God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Our mourning, for the you, mourning, should be sanctified with devotion. So writes Spurgeon. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts 
are not our thoughts. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Matthew Henry, in all of our comforts and in all of our crosses, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, I count all gain as loss because of the worth of knowing Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job has weighed the value of things in this world, even the best things in this world, even the gifts of God in this world. And John Piper writes, Job's reverence is based on the value of God for who God is in and of himself. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Spurgeon writes this, Job's last comfort lay in this truth that God is worthy to be blessed in things. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Dear friends, let us never rob God of his praise, however dark the day is. It is a funeral day, perhaps, but should not God be praised when there is a funeral as well as when there is a wedding? Oh, but I've lost everything. And is this one of the days when there is to be no praise due to God? Most of you know that the queen's taxes must be paid and our great revenue has the first claim upon us. Let us not rob our king of the revenue of his praise. From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Oh, but I have lost a child. Yes, but God is to be praised. But I've lost my mother. Yes, but God is to be praised. But I have a bad headache. Yes, but God is to be praised. In the day of calamity, we should cry, we should think, we should confess the faith, and we should worship. I think that's good. I think that's true. I think that's accurate in describing what Job did here. But as we close this, I got to counter it just a little bit. I just did something that I don't like. I made four points out of historic and poetic narrative. Guess what? Your lives aren't outlines and you don't live by points. Your lives are narrative. My life is a narrative Perhaps it is helpful for us, and of course I hope it is, to examine a narrative, to look at it and say, okay, let me, let me consider the parts of this, let me see what he went through, and to begin to get those things ingrained into our hearts and minds. So, so maybe it's good to take it apart, see how this thing works. But I beg you, put this back together. Reassemble these verses now. It would be nice if we all remembered four points of every four or three point sermon that are out there. I doubt you do. Don't worry, I don't remember the three points of all of my sermons either. Put it back together. You want a simple application? Memorize Job 1, 20 and 21. I recognize an error of mine. I often use this passage in starting out a funeral and I start it with, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And I thought, that's a bad place to start. 
because that's a miscommunication of this passage. I've got to start a verse earlier. Put it back together. Secondly, a reminder. Guess what? Job doesn't have one, one chapter. He's got 42 chapters. This is a really good start. This is not the end. Right? This, is, this is the confessional, catechetical start of Job's response to suffering. It's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. He and his friends are going to travel through deep, confusing, tumultuous waters. Rapids that are at times going to get them stuck, flip things out of their raft before they get back home to this passage. We're going to struggle too. This is the beginning. We'll get back to this in Job, but 42 chapters later. 42 chapters of struggle. Give space to one another, to yourself, to struggle. And finally, Jesus and his suffering and his death and his res resurrection are the aha of the book of Job. The, oh wait, now it makes sense, of the book of Job. It's, it's good in and of itself. In and of itself, it's an incredible piece of literature. But praise God, it's not in and of itself. And Christians, we are not supposed to look at it in and of itself. It provides an end in the mystery of God, but one yearns for more than that. And God gives more than that in the person of his son, in the person of his son who becomes the sufferer. Combining several authors with my own thoughts. In Jesus, God has joined us in the hell of our suffering. The final answer to Job is that Jesus, the innocent, absorbs all deserved and undeserved consequences of evil in himself to redeem his own. And so we say, blessed be the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Indeed, Jesus, blessed be your name. May we exalt you. May we find our hope and our consolation in you. We see the mirror dimly now. There will come a day when we will see face to face and all of the confusion and the doubt and the suffering will be wiped away. Grant us grace. Grant us patience. Grant us hope and preserve our faith until that day. Amen.